I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host, and my job is to help you deepen your connections, increase your sales, and serve your audiences better. Every Monday morning, I send out a storytelling tip to my email subscribers, and I talk about how I have used it in my own storytelling for my clients and for myself, and I leave you with tangible advice on how you can apply it to your strategies. If this sounds like something that would interest you, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. Again, that's rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a video marketing agency that helps you tell heartfelt stories to maximize your impact in minimal time. Find out more about what we do at sixsecondstories.com. What's up, storytellers, and welcome back to the Storytelling Lab. This is episode 112, and it is the first guest episode of season eight. And boy, oh boy, am I coming in hot for season eight. My guest today is one of a kind. She is truly in a league of her own. And in episode 112 of the show, I have an amazing conversation with the Nancy Duarte. So I could do the whole thing where I just go through a long list of all her accolades, like all her best-selling books like Slideology and Illuminate and Data Story, which I think is her most recent book. I could talk about her TED Talk that has millions of views, The Secret Structure of Great Talks. But I'm not going to do that. Everybody does that. I could talk about her business, Duarte, and all the top 
tier companies around the world that they have worked with. Yeah, I could do all of that. But I'm just going to keep it simple and let you know that this is one of those what we call on the show storytelling gobs. Nancy Duarte, she has done it all in storytelling. And I am so happy that I got the chance to talk to her. Anybody in my space looks up to her and the work that she has done. But here's the thing, y'all. Whew. I'm remembering the conversation now. She's been on every big podcast, you know. She's had interviews and articles written about her and all of this. But at the end of the day, we just sat down and we told stories. And now listen, now this, I've been holding on to this interview for a while. I recorded it at the very end of 2021, and then I took a six-month break from the show. A lot of you all know things that have been going on in my personal life that made it really challenging. Well, we talked about some of that, and what I wasn't prepared for, listen, I was prepared for all the storytelling, you know, brand storytelling gems that she was going to drop, and she does, but I wasn't prepared for all the parallels that we had, traumatic parallels that we had in our lives that we shared, and we go there, we talk about it, I get emotional multiple times in this conversation, whether it's talking about uh, abusive alcoholic parents, or imposter syndrome and thinking we're not good enough and we don't deserve seats at the table. It went there. And this, this, my dear listener, is the power of stories. We we told stories through the show, through the conversation. It's not just a back and forth interview. Like we connected. And that is what stories are. That's the power of stories. It's a collaboration between storyteller and story listener. It's a dance between us. And we were in the zone. And I couldn't be more grateful for her opening up and being so vulnerable and doing this with me. And it was just so evident why she is one of the best in the world at this thing we call storytelling. Oh, I am so, so excited to bring you this conversation. So let's not waste any more time. Here is my amazing, amazing conversation with Nancy Duarte. And I hope that you love it. What's going on in your world these days? I mean, it's such a, you know, it, it's hard to navigate this personally and professionally, yet we still have to do it. Yeah. What are you excited about? What are you working on going into 2022? Oh, yeah, I, I, that's a great question. I'm super excited about 2022. In fact, my password is some derivative of I'm excited about 2022, <laughs> like, <laughs> literally. Um, so um, we are for the first time throwing an event like Duarte's never done our own event. So we're doing our first one in February, exclusive client only, very kind of a secret, secretive invitation only. And I'm yeah. actually creating a new body of work for that. And so I have, um, uh, created and used this model, which I can't share. It's too premature, right? Cause it's not under copyright yet. But mm-hmm. what I did is flip the model. I kind of learned it from Chip Heath. He said what he and his brother, Dan started to do is they started to do keynotes first before they wrote the book, they would write mm-hmm. the keynotes, see how it resonated, see right. the audience reaction. You can physically see the reaction. So fortunately during and pre COVID, I got to kind of keynote this new um, story model and people loved it. So I'm real excited about it. I've been putting like words to the model, stories to the model, because it's mm-hmm. basically the four types of stories every leader needs to know how to tell. 
Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those bodies of work where I feel sparkly when I'm writing it. Like, you know, you it feels, that? you can feel the fizziness in it. And so that's been really energizing for me. So I, I, I love that'll the, get me through Q1 at least. <laughs> yeah, no, that is exciting. And I love that. What'd you say? Sparkly. That makes you feel sparkly. Fizzy, sparkly. That feeling is so good when you, oh. when, you when you get there, right. Of like, yeah you know, what the gap that you fill and, and the problems you solve for other people that also lights your heart on fire, you know, I know. And, 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 and I feel like all of us are on this eternal quest to find that. And a lot of people don't, right. They, yeah. It's like you yeah. find your passion elsewhere and I suppose that's okay. And then you, you make your money here, you know, I think yeah. it's, it's all kinds. Right. But for me, like I've always worked for myself and it took a long time to find that happy place in the middle. Right. Yep. And when, when, when I did, and, and I'm just still like cultivating it now, uh, but man, that's a great feeling. And I love those. I love that fizzy, that sparkly feeling. Well, I think you nailed it too. You said, you know, when you find what what you need to do, you didn't say it like this, but you said it's something and it's service of others. Right. So I, I don't feel fizzy, you know, or sparkly for myself or when, you know, when it's like, oh, it's about me or this will bring me, I'll get this out of it. Like, I think that's what, the problem is a lot of people's quest is about what they can get and not what they can give. And the only times it feels radiant and fizzy is when you're, is when it's in service of giving, I think for me anyway. But no, couldn't agree more. My, what I've been marinating on lately is like, um, you know, is, is that fizzy feeling and, 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 and what I really understood in the past couple of years that one, that for me, it's helping others, have that aha moment and that light bulb go, go off, which I had. And when I had that experience, it was transformative. Yep. And so for me, that fizzy feeling comes from, you know, I see it because I can be objective. It's like a therapist almost. But when they start to put those pieces of the puzzle together and they're like, uh, I mean, I live I for, for that moment. And I'll, I'll give you another example that's right now. So I, I don't want to digress too much, but I literally just posted a, a, I have a weekly column at a local publication I've been writing at for a few years. And it's all just kind of like the lessons I've learned, the life lessons I've learned the hard way. And I just rekindled a relationship with my brother last week for nice. 15 years. We haven't talked or spoken oh since my, my father passed away. Wow. And I kind of lived publicly and I wrote about it. And that fizzy feeling didn't come from me writing about, hey, reconnecting with with my brother. It came from all the comments that were like, oh, my gosh, Rain, I'm going through something similar. I needed to hear this today. That's nice. You know, right. And all those people that it really impacted. So I, I, I couldn't agree more when you find that thing. It's bigger than you. Right. We spend exactly. our whole lives trying seeking, whether it's through faith or, or, or whatever, trying to find that connection to something bigger than us. And I think this is a way to do it in the work that we do. I agree. Service. Completely agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where did this where did this all start for you? <laughs> you know, I get asked that. And sure. sometimes it, I think sometimes think people think that, you know, your destiny or your calling is like as straight as a line between oh, point no. A and point B, right? <laughs> but it's like, oh my gosh, you know, it moves between ill fortune and good fortune. And I just wrote a little piece about how how you have, even though you want, even though it wanders, it, it's a test to see if you could stay committed mm. to what you're supposed to do in life, you know? And and um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like 
typical, you know, economically and emotionally starved environment as a kid with all the neglect and abuse and like, and I just knew, I mean, what that did is it shaped in me what I didn't want. Um, and then I knew if I kind of did some of the things opposite of, of what I had. Um, and I've been on a really interesting journey reign with, of reconciliation also with my own mother, because she was a a, a traumatic figure um, mm. in all of my siblings' lives, and and she passed away this last Feb, uh, mm. February twenty first, and uh, my brother sent me her just ratty, worn out Bible, you know, and it's got highlights and underlines and and marginalia, right? And her and her story is in the marginalia, and in and in working through. Um, healing around her passing we had no amends to make mm. but i'm finding strength and hope in the marginalia which is interesting so i can see in there her struggle for her sobriety and her sanity in there it's like sobriety sanity and and this quest of which i don't know that i had as much grace for until now i'm seeing it in her own words her mm her her own trauma and so that's been that's been really beautiful for me and i think that um she is kind of a um in my heart she'd been a little bit almost like the villain in my story you know and uh, with a lot of the childhood trauma and then at at um 14 she actually uh taught me about god and then at 16, fully abandoned me and my siblings. And so there's this weird dichotomy of how she showed up and shaped me. And I would say that that single figure in my life, other than God, shaped me, like shaped me to become something different, shaped me to break the cycle, shaped me to be uh, and show up with with empathy because that's what she lacked like she was narcissistic bipolar personality disorder and and sh how she showed up shaped me and i have to say it shaped me into a better human and i today like i feel so grateful for her and you can listen to earlier podcasts or if i even mentioned her it right. was more like she was something i had to overcome yeah. versus something i needed to embrace Mm. well i didn't know that we would connect like this today nancy uh i <laughs> sorry i for going there <laughs> no i mean this is what i love about what we do it doesn't take very long for good stories to pull you in and start to hit here um <clears throat> yeah i come from an abusive alcoholic household as well my father which put the strain on i have two brothers one recently passed away very recently sorry. Yeah, life is brutal, right? It's, it's yeah. tragically beautiful, but also brutal. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I definitely can empathize with that and and understand how as you grow older and mature, yeah. you learn the way these things shaped you. And it's not just, you know, making that person the villain, but seeing the pieces of that person in you, seeing yeah. the lessons that you've learned along the way of how to be a better human. Yeah. But yeah, I think... <laughs> If we're not careful we might go deep here today nancy well it's um one last kind of put a punctuation mark on it sure. all is um there's a lesser known quality of storytelling in joseph campbell's hero's journey and that's when the 
protagonist puts on the skin of their enemy. Mm. So you see it how in Wizard of Oz, it gave them access to the castle and in Star Wars to the Wicked Witch's castle in Star Wars, they put on the um, stormtrooper outfits, got access. But then it that plays another part in something like Avatar where Jake puts on the skin of his enemies mm. and understands these are not our enemies, you know? So it, it's a it's a tool to, it's an empathy block, yeah. right? It's Liter- an empathy Quite literally block. putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Exactly, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so what kind, of, what kind of kid were you? <laughs> I was, um, I, I was a runner like literally wound up doing track. So when there was something going on at home, I hopped on my bike. I could go 20 miles just as a little kid, right? Ran out the door and just ran. Yeah. Um, I joined a little, uh, it was called Campfire Girls. It was kind of (laughs) like Girl Scouts or whatever. And I sold mints, little mints outside the bank. Didn't even know I was good at it until my troop won. Like a little tiny group of five people sold more campfire mints than anyone in Northern California. So I think I was always industrious. Um, I did a I did a, a map, a story map, where I, over time my life went between ill fortune and good fortune. Just mm. mapped it out from Kurt Vonnegut's model, mm-hmm. and um, I found this little grouping of, of of like good fortune in the fifth grade. You know, between the third and fifth grade, it spiked and spiked and spiked. And there were moments when I was competing against myself when I was put in self-paced reading programs or they let me, are you ready to look at integers and you're only in the fifth grade, right? And I got to kind of like, and I wasn't competing against others. I was competing against myself. And that was when I was the happiest, oddly. And so I do think I still, I still love to accomplish. And I do think it is the counterbalance to, you know, my, my childhood, but I enjoy that. I enjoy it. And, um, and not for my own gain, you mm-hmm. know, it is usually for, um, for others. So I don't know, it, that, that's kind of who I was no. as a kid in a snapshot. Yeah, I, I realized later when I started studying some of the, like the adult children of alcoholics uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> models. I have my and, book right here. Right, for sure. <laughs> Mine's over there. You know, and there was one, my brother, who I was closest to kind of took on, I think they called it like the clown, like, you know, this, you know, always joking and kind of like playing it off, even though hurting on the inside. And I was very much the family hero, which it sounds like you were in yeah. that space where yeah. everything at home was negative. But when I made all A's or when I scored the most goals in soccer or whatever, I was excelling in all things around that same age, actually, fourth, fifth grade, you know, it had a little a little jolt of positivity into the family dynamic, which, of course, wouldn't last very long. Right. And before my dad came home and did something. So it put me on this eternal quest to like I could never get comfortable, never stop and smell the roses, just, you know, on to the next one. And I still struggle with that. It's And like anything, there's a flip side to it. There's a good side. It pushes me to achieve things and you know and then the downside is sometimes you know my self-worth is wrapped up in into productivity mm. and if I yeah mess i am some- too mine is too a little bit like if i mess something up like i'm destroyed yeah it's funny i like even when i vacation or if as i retire <laughs> i feel like my va- you know how i'm gonna retire looks so different than my husband i mean he could just golf every day he could just do leisure <laughs> pleasurable relaxation looking things and i said i don't know i feel like i have not truly lived if i don't produce if i don't produce Jeez. something for someone or don't produce something that's of value um, to someone, like even if it's sending a meaningful note to some or something, but it's like, have I really lived if I didn't give in some way, right? Mm-hmm. So my, I cloak my 
need to produce to, you know, in kindness to others. But, but yeah, that's interesting. I am definitely quite a bit that way. Yeah. So from being the extra smart and extra fast schoolgirl, where <laughs> yeah. did you go from there? Like, wh- what did you, what did you jump into in terms of your studies as you yeah. became a young woman? Yeah. So, well, my mom left at 16. Right. And I still went to college for one year in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, University of Southern Miss. And I got a C minus in speech communication and a D in English. And now I write books in English right. about speech communication. Right. <laughs> and so I failed. Like I felt like a scarlet letter, really. It mm. felt like a scar and it hurt. And so I did what I don't always recommend everyone to do is got married when I was 18 and married the love of my life and just had our 40 year anniversary. But what's interesting. Yeah. So it was fun and, and, and awesome and everything, but what happened that was a really big deal for me was, I don't know, I think it was 25, 20, at least 20 years into the business. We've been in business now for 33 years. Um, Cisco, one of my biggest clients, they had a diverse supplier program. And they put together a protege program where executives would sponsor a um, minority or female-owned business. And, and um, when I was chosen to be in the program, one of the things they did is they worked with UCLA to let me building this really big successful business count as my undergrad and they paid uh, and subsidized for me to get an MBA from UCLA. So here was this kid that had walked around much of my life in the Silicon Valley that's built on the backs of MBAs and I I felt like a poser. I felt like mm-hmm. unqualified. I mean these now I was well read. I read wow. HBR's back to back. I read every business book back to back. You know and you know you could finish school and you have to yeah. say a lifelong learner or your credibility and, and relatability you just you have to roll with the time so fortunately nobody ever asked me if I had my MBA or not and so I do feel a, a debt of gratitude for Cisco for doing that to me because this hole in my soul called you're too dumb to edu- be educated or you know just was closed it just healed and and it and it made me feel really proud of what I did instead of uh, seeing that flaw, like, I don't know why sometimes maybe it's people like us, we see the void, you know, like we don't see everything else, but we can fixate on a void. And that's that, that void was closed for me when, when um, Cisco did that for me. So it was really cool. Yeah, I have a similar void that may, I may be, you know, starting a new venture this coming year that, that, that may help close that too. That's cool. Um, But yeah, but I know, I know that feeling. It sounds very similar. So wait, real quick, where did you, uh, I know you said you went to, um, to Hattiesburg for, for school. Where'd you grow up? Oh, so I was up up until ninth grade. I was in a small town in Northern California called Chico. And then my dad, I went to high school in a year of college when my dad uh, moved us to Mississippi. He was an oil land man. So he would lease and buy the mineral rights uh, to property from, you know, poor country folk that didn't know better <laughs> and um, basically the plot of there will be blood yeah and then my husband was also from chica we met in junior high actually okay. and so we fell in love one summer when i made a trip back to chico to visit yeah what was the culture shock from chico to mississippi like? it was it was hard because mm-hmm. um you know we had a lot of black friends in chico mm-hmm. and i get there and everything's segregated and i was only there a few years after they had integrated the schools wow. right and so there was still this like Sheesh. i would carpool with my little white friends in their beautiful car and they'd be like oh we have to go to the quarters i'm like what's a quarters like what i didn't even know like what does this mean the quarters to go to school you know so what they had to drive in 
in and, and it was all integrated. And I made, I took PE and cause that's what you did in California. You rounded and, and women in the South didn't take PE because that's, that was almost like the place they sent the black girls. Right. And it was wow. just like, what? I was just so, that's and I did have, yeah, it was, there was a lot of more racism than I was expecting. Like yeah. when I hang out with the guy, with the black guys, you know, white men would come up and say, if you, if I see you talking to her again, you'll be a dead man. I mean, it was non-trivial. Wow. The threats. Yeah, it was wild. And this was 80, this was 77 to 1980. So it was only like less than a decade after, well, it was like, it was closer to the civil rights movement. And, and believe it or not, I was in Forest County and um, Forrest was not, you know, he was one of the lynchers. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's about as deep South as you get. Yeah. And sure. so um, it was hard. It was different. Um, it was different. I believe it. Yeah. So when it's you healed a lot, it's, it's different today. A lot's happened since then. Yeah. So. I mean, the, st- the South, I'm from North Carolina, so not quite mm-hmm. as far South as Mississippi, mm-hmm. but we still struggle with the same things. And it's, yeah. you know, even when I was growing up, <clears throat> it wasn't like forced segregation, but you walked into the lunchroom. I, I, I dated a girl briefly after high school, but we had gone to high school together who was biracial and she moved from Italy mm. to little Washington, <laughs> North Carolina. Um, <laughs> and talks about walking into the lunchroom and there was just very much white people on the right and and black people on the left and here she is a young biracial girl who literally didn't know which way to go so it just turned around and left and like ate by herself and i just remember hearing that it's like wow you know you when you're in it you don't really think about it but yeah Dark yeah, my husband came for a semester and he's he's Mexican and um, and he was taunted until he spoke and they were like, oh, we thought you were Cuban or <laughs> he was like, uh, you know, and it, it's just weird. And the church ladies accused me of sinning by. Um, yeah, because you're not supposed to do interracial marriages, you know, <laughs> it was just it was just. Yeah. I don't know. I was just yeah. so in love. I just, I didn't care. Right. I just was, um, I married a good man and I'm very, very fortunate. Very when, fortunate. When did you start to realize that this, this thing with communication, this thing with storytelling was something that you were really skilled at? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I did travel in the South um, mm-hmm. when I was just little, 15, 16, I would go and speak in the rural, rural uh, churches there. And it was really, I, I knew I loved it. I, I knew I wasn't afraid to public speak. Right. I did not know it was my career, I would say, especially getting a C minus in speech communications. Right, right, right. And um, what happened actually, when we bounced in the Silicon Valley, my husband started, he bought a Mac to do his papers on for college. And he's like, I think this could be a business. I'm like, you're dumb. This is dumb. This, you know, no way can this be a business. And there's twice in our marriage where he got on his knees and begged me to change my mind. And this was one of them. And he was like, no, no, this could be a business. And so I said, look, if I can sell it, you can keep it. If I can't sell it, you're getting a real job. And I had his resumes all stacked up. And sure enough, I made phone calls and we picked up Apple Tandem, which is now HP and uh, NASA in like one set of phone calls. And so um, what happened was we entered the space just before you could hook up a projector to a computer, right? So people don't realize what a massive thing that was. So we had a 35 millimeter imaging machine and we were just starting to print overheads off of a dot matrix printer, right? Mm -hmm. But we became known as the only people 
some of the only people you could hire to make slides. And so um, it, I liked this. One of my other employees says presentations found me and uh, that we entered this niche just at the right time. Apple was our biggest client from 88 to 93. And then one of the biggest departments there had a layoff. And those people, they just scattered across the Silicon Valley like beautiful seeds and took us with them. And that was a real um, inflection point in our growth was when they all kind of, and that was the same time when, when believe it or not, um, um, uh, projection systems were like sitting on the table, like you, you could just pick them up and sit them on a table. That was such a big deal. So all of that stuff was happening all at the same time. Yeah. And it, it wasn't really probably until I wrote my first book that I thought, oh, I, we really have mastery of this. I thought we did. I thought we were possibly best in the world at it um, because we worked with the best brands and mm -hmm. um, in the whole world. And, and sure enough, yeah, I think I think we've had a lot of breakthroughs in how we've taught others to communicate. What were the main services that you were offering in those early days? <laughs> yeah, I just, it's so funny. I just, I just was finishing a whole um, story about this. So we actually had uh, five services. We offered um, web, print, infographics, identity, and presentations. Mm -hmm. And the, I looked up, I actually went to the Wayback Machine because I wanted to make sure that I told this story correctly. And presentations was always last because we wanted people to have to skim across it and not think of us as presentation experts because it was reviled. I mean, this was a reviled medium that needed a reinvention, you know? And, and I couldn't even get really world-class designers to come to work for me because they're like, <laughs> all the other big agencies, uh, the great famous firms would hire us to do their slides because they were above it, right? And so, yeah, 2000 happened, the dot-com crash happened and our business shrank by 25%. And you know what it shrank in? Those other four services presentations were still ringing off the hook. In fact, it rang more because when in a downturn, people want an amazing sales deck. They want an amazing financial pitch. Like it grew, it didn't shrink. And at the same time, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, came out and in there, yeah. he has a hedgehog concept. And it says, if there's one thing you can be passionate about, you could be the best in the world at, and you can make money at it, do just that one thing. So here the economy is crashing, and I decide to shutter four out of the five services that we offer. And I, I don't know why I tend to make really counterintuitive decisions right in the middle of a crisis. <laughs> and that was the best thing I ever did because it was eight years later, I wrote Slideology by being narrowly focused. And it's like, I loved them. I loved presentations. And, and, and it was a real, we had to become an integrated firm because I, it was a hard, I had a hard time retaining designers that would spend all day making decks. Well, now it's a career. Now it's a title. It's a job title. Back then it was not. And so, um, yeah, so now the story, now we write the story and not just the visuals and help you coach and you do speaker coaching so you can deliver your best talk. And mm -hmm. it's just a beautiful package. The whole thing's just stunning how it transforms people. Do you remember the point when, I mean, if you're helping people with communication in general, especially presentations, you inherently know the value of narrative storytelling structure yeah. but what do but was there a moment or can you remember yeah. a moment when you when storytelling really started to emerge like th this is the approach that we have to take or that you were selling people do you remember when you really started yeah. doubling down on the storytelling component of presentations of business storytelling 
Yeah, what happened was um, 2000, so I studied it like crazy. So we had done content for our clients for a long time. Right. And in 2006, we, uh, well, we'd been working with Mr. Gore for a long time and then the movie came out. So there was this whole little swirling of excitement and I wrote Cytology and I remember the phone started to ring for training and I'm like, training, that's just the same as presenting. No, it's not. <laughs> and so I was, I started to build out this course for Slideology and started to realize that we needed a strong, they can't just come and doll something up. We needed a strong process for narrative. So I finished that book in 2008. So in 2007, I started to study story, story structures in literature and cinema in all the way back to Aristotle's poetics, just yeah. everything I could find on story because I knew that presenting is a form of storytelling. There's a storyteller and a story listener. But I also knew that the greatest speeches had a rhythm and a cadence and mm. something that kind of, it had that cathartic rise and fall, but mm -hmm. it, yet it maybe had anecdotes planted within it, but the master structure still had a rise and fall to it. And I, I wanted to figure out what that was. And it was that question I asked myself after studying three and a half years of story, then analyzing. I had a book called The 100 Greatest Speeches of All Time. And I read all the books of the famous speechwriters in the White House. And I just did a whole bunch of, of study. And I sat down one day and drew a shape. And I knew it was the shape. It took me a long time to figure out what to name the rise and fall. Um, but then I did. So that was uh, writing resonate and even the success of the TED Talk. Um, was very transformative to me because story now I would almost say is in my DNA. And for me, it was kind of the gateway drug to empathy for me, to be honest, like story is like this living, breathing structure I can hold up in my head. And uh, it's a life coping mechanism, even for life. And I did not know anyone who's gone deep into story would attest to uh, there's some sort of uber universal narrative that story feeds into and it it clicks in our brain. I mean, it's proven now with Absolutely. fMRI machines, mm -hmm. right? We could see what's going on in the brain and our brain is just firing like a freak show when a story is being told. And so there is something actually in our DNA about story that, um, that lights our brain up and transforms us. And I think it's gonna get more and more interesting the more and more research we do on why. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I that walk through story. So I am the first to kind of apply uh, slideology kind of brought like design language to the business audience so they could say, oh, this is why this is a better way to do it. Yes. And then resonate did the same thing and applied story in a very deep and a, and a way to help people understand how to apply story structures to your communication. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of that. I never knew I'd be a writer um, ever. If you told me that, I would have died laughing. Maybe I would have stayed in college if you told me that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just been a, um, quite the journey. <laughs> totally. And, you know, you mentioned kind of that bigger, broader, lesson learned when you dive into in the story this yeah. is how i've spent the past three or four years of my life so i'm like i'm having those revelations you know last year yeah. this you know this year right now so i i feel that wholeheartedly when you were doing all that research were there any pieces like what are your go-to pieces or books on story like what are the ones that really influenced you or that still like 
you know, you get value from. Yeah. There's a I lot mean, out there, especially now. Yeah. I pulled out, like I have a little set that I keep all the time. I just pulled out Joseph Campbell's Hero, uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces again. Mm -hmm. um, and the one I really like is Chris Vogler's The Writer's Journey. And he wrote this for writers of screenplays. Mm -hmm. And he took the 17 part structure from Joseph Campbell narrowed it down to 12. He was an analyst for all the Disney movies. Yep. And he would analyze, he was like, we should be using Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey to analyze the movies. And so he broke it down into 12 necessary spots. But he has a lot of stuff in there about the archetypes and other things like that too. So I pulled that out to refresh mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed that. I mean, there's bookers, there's different um, stories on different shapes of plots and how many plots are there and what are they? There's one that says there's seven, one that says there's 26, one says there's 42, another says there's 36, the original. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I love cruising back through these things. And I just, um, in November, just kind of cruised through it all again and just refreshed it and found things I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, like I really was enjoying reminding myself in uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, the concept of a boon, like I even have the writer's journey right here. And and a boon, you know, we always talk about where well, you get the elixir, elixir, like there's a goal, right. the protagonist has a goal. But he says, okay, at the end, it's a boon. And a boon in that case is the skills that you bring back to your ordinary world have magical power to transform others, you know? And I was just like, that's right. You know, it is a magical power to come back, to go through a trial, come out of it changed. And if we could just perceive it as if, wow, the story is a magical power of transformation, I can tell, um, and others will be changed too. So um, yeah, it was just, it was just fun to cruise through some of these bits again and, um, and be just as lit up about them as I was the first time I read them or see That's insights awesome. now, like a decade later, it's been longer than that, I guess. But um, yeah. So most, a lot of my clients, a lot of my <clears throat> listeners are small business owners, Yay. nonprofits, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs. Um, and Love so it. I try to help them understand to keep it simple. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I just uh, released a book a, a month or so ago. And it's funny because I was talking about all the different models that are out there, you know, like you said, uh -huh. 26 steps, seven steps, 12 uh -huh. steps, but they all still kind of resemble the, the same shape and structure. And when you yeah. know it, like, like we know it, I mean, you know, you can use any of them, but they, they can all kind of achieve it. I think people, certain people just resonate with different models. Right. Right. Let's break it down to the, to the, like, let's, for someone who's very new to this, let's say someone's listening now and they have their business and they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, clarify their message and use storytelling a little bit better in their marketing. What's the simplest form of structure for businesses that, that what's the framework that you, that you use for them on a simple level? Yeah. I mean, you got to go with Aristotle's three act structure. I mean, classic, right. Beginning, mm -hmm. middle, end, but the beginning, beginning is you got to set up your protagonist as likable and then they go through hardships or conflict. And then because of the conflict, the third act is they, resolve it and they're changed from it all. And so that's classic, you know, quick three act structure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, if you're telling a, a like a personal story an I story, it's almost like a testimony, a testimonial. And if you're talking about your product, then 
your product should not be the protagonist. Your customer should be the protagonist and your product would be the mentor in that kind of three-act structure um, where your customer is this likable customer. The second act is, is they're stuck. They have a roadblock and then your product shows up and, and helps them get unstuck. And that's the resolution of the story. So there's simple classic ways to use a three-act structure in whether it's an internal story, uh, an external customer story, and an, an, an investor relations story, like whatever, mm-hmm. whatever is the kind of story that you need. Uh, it's just the classic three-act structures of framing device that timeless. What, what is it about people that even knowing that, I think we all kind of inherently know that, but keeping it that simple, why, why do people still tend to complicate things? Like when you, when you're a business owner, what, what are the, what are the things that people struggle with to understand that you tell, you pitch them the three act simple, you know, structure and they're like, cool, got it. Thanks. And still, I find that, that, that many people will struggle with something that's it's seemingly that, that simple. What, why do you think? I, you know what? I think the gap between, storytelling after I've had a cocktail (laughs) versus standing up in front of people who I want to have admire and respect me. Like Uh it's weird, right? It's like, I'm going to show up at work. I'm trying to climb this ladder, you know, and it's different. What happens is in business because uh, to be successful for some people, they think that means we have to show up like we have no flaws. Mm. And I think that's like a mask we put on for work. So some people have a hard time. Masks are all through, like Joseph Campbell's, like we have a hard time pulling down the facade and letting people see who we really are and that life's hard, hey, you know? And I'm quick at that, you know? And sometimes people are like, yeah, maybe I go there a little too quickly. <laughs> but um, I think that, people know if people really understand the power of a story it's that second act that middle part i call it the messy middle people just don't want to say life is messy and i had to overcome these things but i did yay you know and i just think people don't like to go there in work situations Mm -hmm. but i'll follow a leader who talks about life being hard and tries and fails before i would follow a leader who pretends they're perfect like that's quite a bit more dangerous of a cocktail to you know to put out to people is hey i'm perfect in every way follow me just doesn't doesn't turn my crank um so well if i hear that story i know i'm not perfect if i hear someone talking about oh yeah you know everything's been a success hitting all these home runs well i'm not going to feel like i can replicate that success because you inherently have some talent that i don't have right but if I hear that, like, hey, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, honestly, your story is super inspiring when you're when you're telling me, seeing what you've done, and when you're telling me that you feel insecure and you have this void because you didn't do this thing that you think, you know, people will judge you for not accomplishing or whatever. Like, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel about mine. And it makes me feel like, hey, I don't I don't feel like such an imposter when I'm with these people that kind of trigger that feeling. Yeah. comes back to that that empathy but i think that's what yeah. allows people to to feel like they can accomplish the things they want to if you just talk about your wins nobody can relate to that because we're all imperfect yeah yeah yep i agree i want to ask you very this is like a very foundational like sim- simple question just kind of like a, a list uh you and i know a lot of the different ways that stories and storytelling can be used in business uh and lately i've been working a lot of people with uh, specifically for storytelling and business and i think most often people think okay external communication marketing 
But let's talk briefly about the variety of ways, all the ways that you can actually use storytelling in business, whether it's leadership, whether it's design, like you tell me what, you know, for someone who thinks that it's just about marketing, what are some of the other creative ways you can leverage storytelling to perform better? Yeah, it's interesting. That's kind of, that's the piece I'm, I'm working on now in giving examples. Um, um, so, I mean, every company should have like its origin story. People should be able to tell the origin story. Mm -hmm. If, if you don't have an origin, if you can't tell the origin story, well, I mean, people need to know, oh, we originated this business because there was this big problem and we solved that and it was amazing victory, you know, um, if you didn't, if you don't have an origin story or you don't tell it well, you should have a calling story because if you're a leader, you shouldn't work at this company unless you feel called to this space or called mm -hmm. to this place or called to serve the people at this entity or whatever. So I think the leader, if they're not the owner and or founder, they need to have a calling story. I'm called to do this because when I was a kid, I got a C in speech communications or what do you know, whatever. <laughs> and so um, there's just a whole sequence of them. Um, we tell the stories around our values. How were our values formed and what were the stories that formed them and all those kinds of things. So um, there's, there's, there's sometimes you should just tell a story so you can bond. You know, we have bonding events um, internally. Some of them are staged, some of them are on Zoom, but but people in my firm are very quick to tell stories and they're internal stories that are private personal stories. We don't tape them. We don't tape them. We don't record it. You have to be there because it's like a sacred moment yeah. almost like where it's like this cannot be canonized on film because it, you know, because the dude was weeping, you yeah. know, yeah. or whatever. And so, um, so we, you know, how I've kind of classified these stories in the next body of work, I think will answer the question in a more linear way than me just kind well, of when can off. we get that nancy <laughs> i don't know like i'm doing the keynote and then i'm <laughs> i'm i'm writing a lot um, and uh -huh. making the points and it takes a, it takes a long time to craft a story well right so yeah, i'm pulling sure. duarte stories my own stories will be the spine of it uh -huh. and then i'm gonna get two or three examples of stories um that also support the concept so yeah. i'm only i'm only in the one of i'm only in the spine stage of it right now <laughs> but i like this body of work I do. Yeah, I seems, do like it, it a lot. Exciting. Yeah. And I like the, the idea and I've used this path too and realized now that it works of, you know, keynote first and then seeing what, what resonates. Yeah. Uh, it's a really powerful way to see, you know, see what sparks and what doesn't. Um, so I have a quick, I have a big question. Probably sure. My last question. It's been something I've been marinating on, but since you're in the, in, in, in the tech world, tech space, um, I wanted to see how, how you felt about this and see if you can see where I'm going with it. You know, as the world is changing so rapidly, you know, I look at, currently I look at storytelling as the thing, it's interesting. And his, historically stories were the thing that separated us from, from animals in a lot of yeah, ways, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I also see that on the, you know, the next generation is the thing that has kind of separated us from machines, from robot, from robots that can replicate a lot of the work that we do. I don't think they can replicate that now, at least they can do a lot of creative things. Now, my question is what <laughs> it's very big. What is the future of storytelling when it comes to things like AI, when it comes to things that we're talking about now, like mm -hmm. uh, the metaverse and things like that. But, mm -hmm. but where do you think, do you think that it will still hold a place as strongly as it's held in humankind 
thus far? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the the concept of a story means different things in AI. So like Tableau, you can go into Tableau, plot a chart, and mm -hmm. Tableau will, through AI, will tell you uh, Q3 was lower. Uh, sales in region blah was lower in Q3, blah, blah, blah. But won't tell you why, won't tell you because, like, but they would consider that a story. It could shoot out an assessment of the data. Right, right. I think that's great. I, I think it's going to eliminate some jobs, right? Because sometimes, you know, if a tool can plot a chart and tell you what it means, hmm, you better be smarter than that and be able to do more advanced pattern finding than that. So that's one form of what I would call storytelling for AI. Now you're starting to see tools that are being promoted that said AI can write your marketing material, right? And I think it can. Could AI write Lord of the Rings? Heck no. No, right? These uber narratives, epic narratives, it could maybe take a crack at it at a through line, but no, I think the human imagination can never be replaced with a machine. Um, and besides most of this AI stuff has to be taught what is good, what is bad, what, mm -hmm. what appeals <laughs> to human nature and what doesn't. Maybe in a thousand or 2000 years, it could be trained enough, but whoever is the trainer of AI will be the one who takes control of our Uber narrative. That's the scary part, right? Is mm -hmm. what is it in a thousand years? It, it was interesting. I'm, I'm in part of an author's group and there's some super crazy, powerful people in it. It's one of those groups where I'm definitely the poser. <laughs> and um, someone, po someone posed um, the, you know, this concept that the worst thing that happened to humankind was the like and share button because we kind of devolved into this into dissent, like a culture of dissent and a culture of hate. And then it was positive. Somebody asked the question, well, how long is it going to take us to recover? And they were like, I think a thousand years. And this is a guy, deep research, wouldn't just throw a figure out there if he hadn't been thinking through this for a long time. So I, the thought of a thousand year, what will the narrative be, is kind of why this, I was posing this concept that in, in a thousand years, could, could a, could, could, the global universe have put in all of our minds into this massive AI system and the AI tell us who we are, you know, maybe, but will people want to follow a machine? Probably not. So um, there is no master narrative right now. I think people used to honor some of the legacy epic and, and, and even the spiritual and religious narratives um, and, people have chosen to say those wield no power. And I just think they do. I think mm -hmm. they do. They have a lot of power to influence um, human ethics and, and um, the way we answer life's big questions and all of that stuff. So I don't think people will run to a machine to find that. I don't know. So storytelling will save us from the machines. That's what you're saying. <laughs> no, maybe. Or or the machines will learn storytelling and destroy the universe. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> did you did you ever read uh Humility is the new smart? No, I haven't seen that. Uh I'll send you a link for that. It's uh okay. it's basically talking about how the you know the things that humans will continue to hold that that, that machines won't or the things like collaboration and creativity. Yeah storytelling for folks like you and I, um, they didn't say the storytelling word, but it's, it is storytelling, um, you know, and so 
being humble is going to be a, a massive skill because we're going to need to work together collectively yeah. you know to not completely get and get i think that's the thing that why entrepreneurs small business people and people don't tell stories at work it's because they don't have the humility necessarily mm -hmm. to embrace the nature under which a strong storyteller would operate under right so well that is a perfect uh, point to end on. So listen, <laughs> thank you so much. I'm really excited to to learn more about the the new piece of work that you're working on. Yeah, I'm excited I'm, about I, it. I'm, I, and I see that it's evident. So that even uh, excites me more. So I look forward to learning more about that. But listen, sincerely, thank you so much for, for uh, taking the time. And uh, I'd love to have the chance to chat with you again someday in person would be awesome because I feel like you know, over a drink or something, we could, we could, uh, we could go pretty deep with some of the uh, yeah. similar parts of our stories, it seems. Yeah, probably would have to be with a drink. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. I'm with it. I'm down with it. Listen. After talking about the red ACA book on our shelves, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Listen, uh, have a good day. And uh, thank I'll you. Talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Rain. Bye-bye. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow, and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.